Welcome to Civil Discourse, a podcast where participants are free to share their ideas, empathize with other perspectives, and who intend to advance to a better solution to fix a societal ill. We will focus on topics that are particularly complicated. In a time where information is from sources more opinionated than ever, our mission is to find solutions and goals to accelerate the nation's progress with cultural impunity. I'm your host, Todd Furness. Welcome to today's episode of Civil Discourse hosted by Todd Furness. I am elated to have Amanda Schnetzer with me today. Uh, I've known Amanda for a long time and only recently in her current capacity, so I want to dive into that for a second. But uh, before we get started, I want to remind everybody to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. It's uh, reliant on your support, so I'm grateful for it. And I think these conversations are really important, and they are not typical. Uh, they address complicated issues, and there's not really a good forum for that anymore on uh, traditional media or even to some extent on the web. So I'm, I'm really grateful to you, Amanda, for joining us for this complicated discussion. Um, let's start off with your background, because you are not the typical person to be what you're doing. And I don't, you know, don't want to create a spoiler alert, alert spoiler alert yet, but uh, you know, talk a little about your background and then want to talk about your family and how you got involved in what you're doing right now. Great. Well, thank you very much for having me on Civil Discourse. I really am a fan of what you're doing and think it's important to have these conversations, um, especially with people you agree with and even more so with people sometimes you'll disagree with. That's the kind of civil discourse we need. So thank you for providing that service to our community. So I mean, we can jump through the spoiler alert. I mean, you and I got to know each other over a shared interest um, in days past around US foreign policy and national security and international trade and US leadership in the world. Um, I love the fact that we're now both um, focusing time and energy on some of the challenges we have here at home, um, specifically related to kind of health and wellness and systems of health and wellness in, in the US. Um, so for background, I mean, the short, the short story is that, you know, I spent most of my career looking at policy-based solutions to tricky foreign policy problems, particularly around issues of human rights and human freedom. Um, but always looking through a policy lens, how do you look to solve tough problems through policy? How do you bring diverse and sometimes high-level stakeholders together to address those problems um, and come up with solutions? So that is sort of baked into my DNA. What's different today is that um, out of a very personal experience, I have a child who has a moderate diagnosis of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Um, we've been managing that and helping him manage it for six years now. And I began to think a lot about, well, yes, there are some policy issues here, but let might be interesting at this point in my life to think about market-based solutions to some of the challenges that I'm seeing, in my case, through the lens of a family caring for a child with a special need, um, but also thinking about the challenges that other stakeholders have in our healthcare system, trying to make sure people have access to the right care at the time that they need it, um, at a cost they can afford, and that actually gets meaningful and measurable outcomes for them. So I'm looking at a specific area of pediatric mental health care um, focused on children with attention deficit um, hyperactivity disorder. I'll stop there, but there's lots we can talk about. 
So let, let's just hit the pause button on that for just a second and, and recalibrate. So I am, in my book, I talk a lot about uh, empowering women generally because women make most of the healthcare decisions for not only our families, but also our country in essence. And um, typically that's characterized as a focus group on what I would call broadly and uh, affectionately soccer moms. Uh, I would, I would assert you are anything but a soccer mob in that you some, you're somebody who's dealing with some of the most complex issues historically have been uh, with uh, the Committee on Foreign Relations, with uh, uh, the Bush Foundation, with others. And, and so this is not a normal segue from a career perspective to say, hey, wait a minute, uh, I'm going to start dealing with healthcare issues, but for the fact that you're a concerned mother. And you know, you're deeply concerned as I believe all mothers are and most fathers, I would say all fathers are, but some are may, may not be, but as all mothers are about the health and safety of your children. And so this uh, almost, I would assert biological com compulsion to serve your child's best interests uh, is one that has led you to try and solve the problem uh, where other solutions may not exist. So we talked to, I talked to, uh, to Laura Murray last week and was really kind of impressed by her for a whole bunch of reasons. Obviously a pediatric psychologist uh, with Johns Hopkins. And through the arc of the conversation, at some points it, there was uh, the beginning of learning, the middle of hope, I mean, of the end, end of hope and despair and a conclusion that said, hey, wait a minute, there's reason for optimism here because of the role of technology and how technology can help us with solving problems that are very, very broken mental health care establishment and industry can't solve. And so talk about, uh, if you wouldn't mind, a little bit about how you recognize the absence of available services to serve your child's need. Yeah. Well, thank you for asking. I guess one thing I would say is never underestimate the power of a soccer mom. Um, they are doers and problem solvers. Um, I guess in my small way, I'm representing women in a couple of dimensions. I mean, one is a mother. Um, I am, I call myself kind of a parent expert in ADHD. I'm not a clinician. I'm not a researcher or academic but I live it day to day. And that is a perspective that is incredibly important in our healthcare system writ large. Um, I'm also representing women, I guess, as a first time female founder. You see more and more of us um, trying to make our way as first time founders, in my case of a digital health company. Um, there's recognition that more diverse perspectives and, and entrepreneurs are needed in our economy more capital is needed to support those innovations and perspectives of diverse founders. Um, and so I'm sort of proud in my small way to kind of represent women and diverse founders and diverse perspectives in, in, in that small way. Um, and I guess I would start maybe just back up just a little bit. Um, it, I think it's been great that on your program, um, you've had 
couple of guests, Laura Miller and um, Brent Christopher from Children's Health, talking about, especially during this COVID-19 period, talking about kind of rising mental health challenges in the United States. They're real. They are affecting adults. They are affecting children and adolescents. Um, I like to look to some of the work of Tom Insel, who was the former um, director of the National Institutes of Mental Health. And he talks about it as a crisis in behavioral health in the United States. Some staggering statistics such as, you know, suicide, death by suicide up in the United States, 33% since the 1990s, deaths due to substance abuse, 10x um, since the 1980s. Our systems of care aren't functioning um, to ensure people have access to the care that they need when they need it. Um, there aren't enough mental health professionals trained to address the problems and the challenges we have in the United States. Um, and that translates into the pediatric space that I'm focused on, particularly around neurodevelopmental issues like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Um, a little bit about that for, for those who may not know, um, ADHD is a neurodevelopmental condition that affects regions of the brain that are responsible for impulse control, self-regulation, executive functioning, organizational skills, those kinds of things. It affects approximately nine plus percent of all children in the United States. So that's about six million. It is second only to asthma of conditions affecting children in the United States. Um, and the cost to society and to families is staggering. Some of the research shows that the societal cost to care for a, just a child with ADHD is more than $100 billion a year across healthcare, across education systems, across justice systems, and I can explain why that is, and across the out-of-pocket expense to to families. It's its own crisis and deserves some attention. And so that's what I'm focused on. So quantify that again. First of all, before we get to quantification, um, just for the audience, could you remind me of the name of the gentleman whom you follow, who's the head of the National Institute for Mental Health? Yeah, Tom Insel. He's the former director of the National Institutes of Mental Health. He is now a kind of leading entrepreneur and subject matter expert in the mental health space, um, founder of a kind of leading mental health technology company called MindStrong that's focused on severe um, mental illness and support for individuals with severe mental illness. Quite an inspiring person and leader in the space. I highly commend his, his work to so, you and so to your listeners. For the audience, we'll, we'll put the, that in the notes section underneath of the yeah. podcast. Um, that, that's very helpful. Thank you. So in terms of quantification, how many children are affected by this and then how many corresponding families, roughly, just in terms of numbers as opposed to percentages? Yeah, so the, there are different ways of measuring it. This, the, the data point that we use is that um, approximately 9.4% of all children in the United States um, have or have had a diagnosis of ADHD. So that's a little more than 6 million children affected at any given time and between the ages of two and 17. So that does not include the adult population. Right, so that at the end of the day, if it's 6 million, you're talking about roughly a total affected population of at least 
15 to 18 million people, right? Because we've got some single parents in there. Um, so that's about uh, a little less than 5% of our, of our nation's population. Uh, the ripple effects of that are obviously are significant. Uh, the reason I'm trying to quantify that is because we had Lisa Gable on uh, the podcast, who's the CEO of the Above Fair, the Food Allergy and Research Education Organization, mm -hmm. and uh, so she, we were talking about the impact of allergies on children, uh, very very significant, obviously. So back to your journey, um, you you obviously had your son diagnosed. Your son gets diagnosed, and I think this is more prevalent with boys, young boys, isn't it? Boy, so the, the the diagnosis rates are roughly a little bit higher on boys than on girls. Boys tend to be diagnosed earlier. Um, girls tend to present in a way that they're often not diagnosed until they're more like tweens or, or teens. But wow. um, but both are, are affected, but tend to be a little bit higher diagnosis rates for boys, yes. So your son gets diagnosed. How old was he when he was diagnosed? He was somewhere between kindergarten and first grade. I'd gotten a call from a kindergarten teacher who could only say so much because they're not allowed by law and other to say things directly sometimes, um, who called and said, there may be an issue with your child. Um, here are some people to call within the school to talk about it. And that set us on kind of a winding journey and a scary journey of what's going on, what is ADHD, is it real? Because there's a lot of misinformation about ADHD. It is real, and it and it and it <laughs> and it and it does have real impacts on individuals and families. And it set us on kind of this winding path of trying to figure out well, who should who should we go see? Should we see a psychiatrist, a psychologist, our pediatrician? Who should do the assessment and diagnosis? Um, what does the assessment and diagnosis mean? What does that mean in terms of our interaction with the school? What is it going to cost? And then all the fear and anxiety that goes with being a parent, which is, and what are the long-term, what are the short-term impacts? Because you can see them immediately in their progress in school or lack of progress, challenges making friends, challenges with behavior. They manifest themselves in all kinds of very immediate and tangible ways. But you also worry about when they become adults. Um, because the majority of children will carry ADHD into their adulthood and the challenges there become much more mm, frightening in terms of, you know, two and three X times higher instances of substance abuse, um, of car accidents, um, difficulty holding down a job. I mean, as young adults, six X higher levels of unemployment as young adults, if you have ADHD. So you begin to worry about the now and you really worry about the later and the future. Um, and we've been kind of on that journey. I will say, it's really important to say, we've been very blessed. We live in Dallas, um, two income family, um, blessed to have the resources to care for our child, blessed to be in a large metropolitan area where there are lots of different providers that we could choose from. Um, not everybody, in fact, most people probably don't um, have those benefits. Um, and yet even for us, it was challenging to know what to do, what provider, what if anything will insurance cover, 
Um, and what do I do to set my child up for success down the road? So you're, you're kind of navigating a complex and convoluted healthcare system and you're caring for a child in the most intimate way, you know, in relationships that, that you have and worry for their future. So that's what set us on this journey six years ago. So your husband is, uh, first of all, you're also, you and your husband are obviously married for a long time. Uh, very healthy uh, nuclear family. Uh, you, see, you have a lot of things going for you there in terms of a mutual support system. Uh, your your husband, if I recall correctly, has not only a college degree but a post a graduate degree too, right? Yes, we both do. Okay, and so we're talking about extremely educated, smart people dealing with the problem. And so let's walk through. Okay, you get the call from the school. What happens next? I mean, just I want to do it a really linear serial discussion because I, I think people are the people who are struggling. I think they they've got to feel so alone and so um, challenged with a sense of hopelessness and uncertainty and fear and all these really really difficult emotions. And so everybody doesn't have the intellectual or cognitive capabilities that you and your husband do to tackle this. So I think it'd be very helpful for them to learn how you stepped through this process to get to where you are today. But yeah. just probably, so, you know, ring, ring, phone, <laughs> you know, phone from school. Next call is uh, probably to your husband. And then, then what happens? Yeah. You know, it's, 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 on the one hand, you sort of go into, there's a part of you that there's a little bit of relief that you're on a path that sort of starts to help explain things you're seeing in the behavior of your child. On the other hand, you're, you're thrust into sort of trying to navigate. So the journey tends to go something like this. You get a call, usually from the school, because that's where your children spend most of the time. There's an issue around behavior. Can't quite say what it is. Um, might be a good idea to have your child evaluated. If you've got a school or a school system that has done a lot to educate teachers and administrators and counselors, and they're well-equipped to respond, you might find very good support systems to help sort of give you a, a bit of a pathway. Now, if you don't- Was this a public school or a private school? In our case, a parochial school, the, the requirements of private and parochial schools versus public schools in the United States in terms of how they, they must respond, um, whether they need to respond to be helpful are different. Um, in some ways, you're almost better off being in a public school if your child has ADHD or, or other um, learning or mental health challenges, you're almost better off being in public schools for a whole host of reasons. But just give me one or two of those big reasons. Why would that be? Well, by law, if you present to the school that there may be a problem, there are there are requirements in place that that a school system must respond within a certain period of time to help a family get an evaluation for what is going on and then come up with a plan. Um, private parochial schools are not subject to the same requirements, though some are very well equipped, um, including the school that my son goes to now to help respond to those issues. Others, others are not. Um, that's kind of what I mean. 
But what happens is you're, you're sort of thrust into trying to figure out, okay, who do I go to? Do I go to my pediatrician? Do I need a psychologist? Do I need a psychiatrist? Um, do I need someone else to help do an assessment and evaluation? And then once I have that, there are a lot into that process, there are lots of people to coordinate, perspectives that feed in from schools and teachers, perspectives that do feed in from different, from your pediatrician, perspectives of the family to try to help assess what's going on. And then does your child meet the standards for a clinical diagnosis of having ADHD? And it is a clinical diagnosis. So you need a- So what was the first step you took? We started talking to friends and family. Where would you go? And of course, the, the first answer you get is usually like, here are the two people I would go to, the best of the best, probably some of the most expensive um, places and to go for that evaluation. And so that's where we went because we wanted the best. So we went to the best, but we didn't know we could have gone to the pediatrician to ask for a diagnosis. We could have gone to our public school, even though we don't go to public schools, we could have gone to our public school, um, our local neighborhood public school and asked for assessment um, because our taxpayer dollars are supporting that. Most people don't know that, we didn't know it. So we found the best clinical psychologist we could in Dallas that could evaluate our, our child and help us kind of plot a path forward. So let's assume for the moment that you've met your deductible and you now go to the child psychologist. Is that covered? No. In the United States, most mental health care professionals are not affiliated with insurance systems. So you're at a minimum paying out of network if you can't find someone who is within insurance. Um, and the, which means that the cost is significantly higher. You may be able under your, your insurance policy to file a claim and get portions of the care and treatment reimbursed. But there's a little bit of a disconnect in this country. Um, and I don't think it applies just to ADHD. You know, the American Academies of Pediatrics has very clear recommendations about assessment, evaluation and diagnosis of ADHD and recommended care and treatment paths, depending on the age and the severity of the condition. Um, those recommendations, what is known from research and clinical work about what generally speaking are the best treatment paths for a condition like ADHD don't align well with what our insurance system says they will cover. Um, on top of that, the mental health professionals are not necessarily affiliated with insurance. And so as a parent, you're sort of navigating, constantly being in and out of network and trying to figure out um, what would insurance cover? What won't it cover? How much can I afford? Um, and even in our case, we sort of rationed mental health care because it's so expensive. We said, well, we could probably go twice a month instead of four times a month in the beginning. Um, because you're trying to get the best care, but you're also trying to manage the fairly overwhelming cost at times. So the, just the sessions with a psychologist, the mental health professional can run two to 400 plus dollars an hour. Is that about right? Average, it depends on your metropolitan, it depends on where you live, but the average in the United States is about $130 an hour okay, for so mental health professional. You go to a city like 
Dallas or San Francisco or New York, you're closer to $200 an hour or more. So first step is get the assessment. Choices are psychologist, psychiatrist, or public school. You've now got the assessment. And what does the assessment say? Assessment says you've got a clinical diagnosis of ADHD. You need to think about sort of how to manage care and treatment in the school, care and treatment at home, care and treatment in kind of social settings that your child is in. And there are sort of some fairly clear recommendations that are not always clear to parents about what that care and treatment looks like. Um, the, general, the general recommendation, depending on age, is a combination of medication and behavioral therapies um, or psychosocial therapies. Um, more children than not who have ADHD in the United States are receiving medication. So prescribed medication for ADHD, less than a third have ever received any kind of psychosocial or behavioral treatment. Um, but that's considered sort of part and parcel with medication, generally speaking, as the recommended care and treatment path. Um, so and that, drugs like, like Adderall and, and, and other drugs, right? So there are, there are both stimulant and non-stimulant classes of drugs that, that are used. Um, some children respond better to some drugs. Um, some families are reluctant um, to put their children on medication. And I understand that we went through that as well. Um, you know, when it, all of these system problems, what happens is they sort of boil down to this at the family level. Um, all these system problems typically result in sort of what we call lack of engagement with quality care. So lack of engagement with the best treatment regimen for your child, outcomes today, outcomes in the future. Um, it's issues of information, access and availability of care, ability to adhere to care. And the, the, the end result is high levels of distress for families and high level and poor outcomes for children. And so we've said in our case as budding <laughs> digital health entrepreneurs, let's think about how to use technology to address the care gap and think about it from the perspective of the consumer or the parent, not to the exclusion of the other stakeholders, but think about it from the perspective of the parent. How would you try to improve access to care, adherence to care, and do it in a way that kind of aligns well with how people really live their lives on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, driving from appointment to appointment with a pediatrician or a psychologist um, for face-to-face -face appointments. COVID-19 has sort of told us all, it doesn't necessarily have to work that way. Um, and now consumers who are paying more and more of their own healthcare costs are also feeling empowered to say, I would like healthcare that aligns better to my life and to my family and to how I live. And we've said at our house, that includes ADHD. And so let's think about technology-driven solutions to um, some of these challenges. That would include things like telehealth and do, doing this online with you know, video and like. Um, yeah. do, do you have uh, other children? I have only one child. Okay. 
keeps us I was busy. wondering about the, the, I was wondering if there were some other effects of the others in your family, which obviously is significant for you and your husband. Um, there are for so, us, but there are for others. So the family dynamic, when you have a child with any kind of special need, including ADHD, the fam family dynamic is often very stressed. Earlier this summer, we did a survey of parents of children with ADHD and asked, where do you spend your time? And what do you find the most challenging in your day-to-day -day life? Top three answers consistently, they were, the, the stress and strain on their family, number one concern that they have a number one problem, how to develop structure and manage kind of day-to-day -day life with their child and how to ensure their child is successful in school. So those are the sort of top three challenges and sources of distress for families. Right, so now we've got um, an assessment uh, a relationship with a care, a care provider or several, and presumably a protocol, meaning we're, here's how we're gonna tackle this problem, here are the steps we're gonna take, um, that'll, that'll include the following things. And your observation, you had an epiphany at some point, you said, hey, wait a minute, yeah. <laughs> I'm not the only one dealing with this. And I think that there's more to this story and there are more tools available to us in this, uh, rapidly evolving world that can step and bridge the gap where the broken mental health care system isn't working and we desperately need a market-based solution and we desperately need others to have to you know participate in, in in the solution and drive a new way of handling things mm -hmm. so what did you do then <laughs> well, I will say, you know, my story is one of, you know, there are so many COVID moments that people have had. I've been thinking about this problem in a more serious way for, for a year or more. And then COVID hits. And so last March, April of 2020, my husband and I found ourselves taking longer walks. Um, there wasn't anything else to do. So let's get out and walk and move. And I started saying, you know, why not? us? Why not me? No, I don't have a PhD in clinical psychology. No, I don't have a background in research. No, I'm not even an entrepreneur. I'm a public policy wonk. Um, but why not us? And decided 20 years from now, I want to look back and say, I had a moment, I seized it, I did what I could do. And with any luck, we'll succeed along the way. So that's my COVID, my COVID-19 moment. Um, so here's, so fast forward, lots Hold of conversations. Before, before, before you get to yeah. fast forward, I was, I remarked, there was a time in my past when a, a very good friend of mine was dealt a very bad blow with personal circumstances. Hmm. And he had his own epiphany and his epiphany was to first say, why me? And to be this. To, to kind of be in this place of despair and, and helplessness and you know, depression. And yet, then, then he had a pivotal moment where he said, why not me? In other words, why, why should I feel that I'm somehow you know, above having adverse, adverse consequences manifest in my life? Why not me? And you've kind of done the same thing. You kind of said, well, hey, wait a minute, we've got this situation. Why, why, you know, you didn't say why me, but you said, why not me? And then you said, 
for the solution, why not me too, right? Why? Hey, I'm, I don't have to be all these things. You know, I don't have to have these titles and these degrees to go solve a problem. I'm a smart person. I can, you know, I'm pretty good at reading and researching and writing, and uh, I can I can help solve this problem, not only for myself but for literally millions of other American families and and maybe even non-American families who want you know who are struggling with the same issues. So you you know, big pivotal moment which you know, a lot of people can be, will, will soon be thankful for, but uh, <laughs> yeah. So then well, so you, you had yeah. this long walk, you're, you're with your husband and all of a sudden you said, hey, why not us or why not me? And you, you said, okay, we're all in, off we go. We're gonna do this thing. I'm sure you had many ups and downs in the next five hours, <laughs> but certainly five weeks and five months. And, and uh, so how did, you, how did you navigate that? What did you do next? Well, I did what a good research professional does. And I said, well, okay, I know what I know. I know some of what I don't know. And there's probably a lot I don't know that I don't know. And I probably need to, to learn. And so, um, but I'm pretty good at kind of taking an idea and helping others and now myself figure out how do you turn that into good strategic planning and execution to get results. So we started talking to people who know things that we don't and trying to validate some of our assumptions or experiences as parents, trying to understand what the research and what would show us about the experiences that we have had. And I will say, I mean, in the last 30 or 40 years, the advances in understanding of what is this neurobehavioral uh, neurodevelopmental disorder, ADHD. What is it? Where does it come from? What causes it? Um, how to evaluate and treat it? I mean, the progress has been substantial um, and reasonably okay systems set up to try to help families treat it. But those systems work better for the clinicians and the payers than they really do. They're not really organized for families. Um, and so how do you get the best of research and the best of what is unknown about how to deliver care and actually get it into practice um, and get it implemented? And so that's where we started focusing in trying to understand this whole journey of care from the perspective of all the stakeholders and use, have been using kind of design thinking approaches to try to understand the map of challenge and sort of pinpoint and ideate potential solutions. And where we landed, at least as a starting place, I mean, I'd like to revolutionize the whole ecosystem of care, you know me, um, but you gotta pick a starting place and you gotta prove efficacy, um, however you define it and you have to define it. What does success look like? Um, and so we said, well, there's this gap in access to psychosocial care, to behavioral therapies. There's a big gap. How do you start to address that gap? And so we started asking and um, people who are now our, our advisors, um, two clinical psychologists, one neuroscientist, um, what could, that is known to be evidence-based treatment strategies for children with ADHD, what would happen if you started to translate some of those evidence-based interventions into a digital environment? Could some of it be self-guided? What meets the water's edge between self-guided and you need trained professional support. And 
we kind of began to hone in on a starting place for a company that is now known as First Then. First do this, then do that. We do that a lot at our house. Um, so the company is called First Then, and we are working on the development of scalable digital interventions um, that empower families with self-guided care strategies. And eventually we'll connect that up to different kinds of coaching and therapy services as well. Okay, so I want to go back a little bit, make sure that I've synthesized this so that sure. the listener can understand because you use a lot of enormous words in there. Oh, and sorry about that. <laughs> no, 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 no. They're all familiar to you too because you're using them all the time. But so basically what happened is you said, hey, there's a gap in care. We, we want to we do things that are evidence-based or fact-based, uh, supported by the empirical method. Uh, and we, in order to do that, we were going to go, go talk to a bunch of smart doctors uh, who were focused on mental health issues in one way or another. We're going to look at a bunch of research. And then we're going to develop an app that will help people fill the gap in care that's not currently being provided in a way that's helpful to families by the existing mental health care establishment. Is that mm -hmm. fair to say? That is fair to say. Okay, so then what you did is you said, hey, wait a minute, I've got an idea. Let's put this into an app that everybody can use that can be portable, meaning it doesn't have to sit on a Cray computer and you can put it on your phone, uh, you can put it on a desktop and it'll be a guided process where people can look at this and say, okay, now I know what to do next. So it's a first then. First, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do the following thing, and it guides you through. Now, the, one of the hot buttons in technology is called gamification, meaning mm -hmm. making games out of certain uh, exercises or protocols. Did you weave gamification into your app? Um, not yet, but it will be on the horizon. Um, I'm just wondering how you're going to keep people's attention. So it must be pretty engaging and includes the app is intended for use by the, the child as well as the parents. Is that correct? Yeah, our first, our first we're in the process of prototyping these um, different interventions um, and, and beginning to test just in the next couple of weeks, we'll start doing some user testing on, on our first prototype. And the prototype is built both for engagement with a parent and the parent with their child. Um, there are aspects of psychoeducation, so basic education. I need to learn something. So the evidence-based framework, let me say that, evidence-based framework that is known to work inside or outside of technology is um, how do you help people build skill and knowledge? How do you set some goals around the problems or the challenges that you're having? Um, and then you take that learning and you practice and you measure the results and you reward progress. So that's a tried and true tested evidence-based framework in mental health care um, and in behavioral health for how do you achieve behavior change. So we've taken that basic framework and are developing kind of educational modules and practical tools that you interact with and engage with that help build skill, both for parents and for children. So an example, morning routines. 
I mean, morning routines are challenging for most families. So like, let's just get that out of the way. If you've got, if you're adult on your own, or if you've got five kids, mornings are hard, unless you're just a morning person, um, which I am, and they're still hard. So morning routines are hard. If you have a child with ADHD, they're even harder um, because you're, you're asking a child that has challenges with motivation, organization, planning, execution, attention to get up, get dressed, brush their teeth and hair, have breakfast, get their shoes on, get out the door. Well, in families like mine, that can take inordinate amounts of time and create lots of frustration in the family. So a tried and true intervention to support families that have these challenges is there's some basic things that you can learn about organizing the morning for your child and they can practice and they can get better and learn and you can create change in the brain um, to create as you create external structures to help the brain adapt to its lack of internal structure. So go one step further and describe what that might look like. So getting ready for the following day or getting ready for the day. Yeah, so things that, that parents can learn. For example, first thing you think about is what the kind of the ABCs of behavior, antecedents, behaviors, consequences. What's happening that's creating, if it takes your child 30 minutes just to put on their clothes in the morning, well, what might be contributing to that? First thing that might be contributing to that is um, they've got to go to the closet and you're expecting your five-year-old to pick out their own clothes. So lay out their clothes the night before, put it all next to the bed, decide what they're going to wear and have that plan in place so that when your child wakes up and gets out of bed, there's no discussion, debate, argument, or anything about what they're going to put on for the day. Um, those are things that, yes, they're intuitive, but they're also really important strategies for families to learn and then put in place and then practice. And practice with an ADHD child is really key um, because you are learning and in a sense, activating parts of the brain that are more challenged to execute on those activities. Um, and so a lot of that, if you go to a therapist's office, you'll learn in a face-to-face -face meeting in a therapist's office, and then they'll say, okay, go home and implement that. Go home and practice the morning schedule um, using these techniques and tools, and then come back and report on that to me. Well, there's a long gap in the life of a family between that appointment and two weeks later or three weeks later when they come back to see the therapist again. And so with our app, we are saying there's a lot that we can do to take the, the slack and the inefficiency um, out of the process by building these tools in an app-based environment so that you don't have to DIY things anymore. The learning is there, the practice tools are there, the data, which is key, the data on your progress is there so that you can see real time results as they happen. Um, and along the way, you motivate and reward and encourage both the parent and the child through the process. So I can imagine that something like Alexa may also be helpful where you're actually using prompts through a speaker. Um, that would be helpful as well. That's, it's really yeah, interesting. Yeah. So you're, you're taking a very, very robust approach 
very science-based approach to building out a very, what I call robust app that will be very helpful for lots of people. When, when do you think you'll finish your trials? And when do you think you'll have your app available on the current that, plan? That's a great question. Um, using a design thinking approach, we're sort of building and iterating. And so we're at the stage quite early where we have prototyped an intervention um, around morning routines. We are preparing to do user testing and get feedback. Um, we are bootstrapping as founders right now and we'll need to go out and raise money. We're hopeful there will be investors who get ex as excited about this as we are and will want to be a part of creating solutions for families. Um, and solutions that also will work for providers and for payers eventually as well. Um, and we hope to be out in the marketplace sometime in 2022. Very good. And you'll, will you do this on an intervention by intervention basis where you'll roll out new things on a periodic basis in terms of updates? Yeah, our goal is to, um, to, to test and beta test um, long enough to develop kind of a core set of educational modules and digital tools where we feel like we can add real value um, in the life of a family from behavioral training to organizational training to brain fitness. And if we, once we have kind of a core, um, a core offering and a core set of, of tools and services that have been tested and we feel confident in, then we would roll that out as a kind of direct to consumer offering in the wellness, in the, in the wellness space to, to begin with. Fantastic. So sometime in 22, um, thinking about raising capital. Ross. <laughs> I know, I know how, how excited you are about raising capital. <laughs> yes. It's, it's everybody's favorite thing to do, but uh, really on a good path, it sounds like and I've been, you know, for those of you who don't know, and most of you don't, um, I've been tracking Amanda's progress now for, for several months and really excitedly doing so because I'm so interested in the work she's doing. I think it's such an important piece of work. Um, you know, I think one of the things that's really, some of us are really fortunate with, and I think you are too, Amanda, is just the blessing of doing work that's really, really important. And you can find a great deal of uh, personal satisfaction and fulfillment in what you're doing beyond, you know, this isn't about making money for you. This is about, although you hope to, but uh, at the end of the day, this is really about solving problems in the marketplace and, and in our communities with people who are really struggling with difficult, difficult problems. So um, I'm going to, one of the things that's gonna, that I'm going to do with, with this podcast, I haven't ever done before, uh, I'm going to go back and say, hey, I, I really want you to get a new, uh, a piece of paper and a pencil <laughs> and listen to this podcast so that you can take notes because so much great information has come through here. I'm hopeful also that you'll include in your app support functions that give people guidance to some of the local resources that they may have based on a geospatial uh, identification capability or location-based uh, opportunity. I think there's so much here that is important, um, dealing with everything from how do you navigate insurance, how do you navigate payment structures, uh, what should you pay, where are resources available we, that you don't have to pay for because we're using tax dollars, for example. All those things are critical and uh, families benefit from that, just the access to the knowledge base of resources that you put together yourself to solve your own problems and needs and uh, and hopefully uh, helping others along the way. Um, 
I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that I could talk to you for another three or four hours, as you know, because <laughs> we've had long conversations about this in the past, uh, but I don't want to take up too much of your time. I'm so grateful for this conversation, and I'm going to, to uh, put the bee in your bonnet right now and, and plead with you to come back uh, maybe in about six months and, and just provide everybody with an update. If not before then, hopefully you'll be in the market before then, but uh, just give everybody an update on how things are going, because I want to make sure that to the extent that I can be supportive by getting this message out, putting this podcast out and making it available to as many people as possible, I, I'm 100% behind you in doing that. Um, I, I believe in the mission that you've t- taken on, and I think it's really important and um, couldn't be more pleased to, uh, to, to call you a friend and, and to really support you in any way I can. Um, well, so thank you so much for today. I'm, I'm grateful and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Thanks for the opportunity. Take care. Thanks for watching this week's episode of Civil Discourse. To learn more about today's topic or our guest, visit www.the60percentsolution.com or www.tfip.group.